All right, hello and welcome to TK Live. I'm Matt Taibbi. Um, if you can uh, hear me, if you could send a few thumbs up so that I know that I'm not speaking by myself. Uh, that's great, terrific. Uh, going to bring Ken Klippenstein up in here in a moment. And uh, he should join me up on the dais. He'll be there momentarily. Um, in the meantime, going to give a little uh, introduction to this story. Uh, this is a, um, a story that Ken co-wrote with um, Lee Fong at The Intercept. And uh, it's called Truth Cops. And it's a uh, it's a fantastic piece that uh, does a lot of things. It, it uh, among other things, um, uh, traces the history of, uh, hang on a moment. Here's Ken. Ken, are you there? Um, apologies. Okay. We'll get that sorted out again. Well, once again, it seems like there's always an issue, uh, when we do this, but, um, here he is. Ken, are you there? Got to unmute yourself and then, then I think you're, you're good to go. Ken, can you hear me? Well, 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 hey, there he is, Ken. Hey, sorry about right. that. Sorry about well, that. If, if it, the mute button. If it's, uh, if it's any consolation, it's actually smoother than some of the other operations um, that I've done on, <laughs> uh, on this platform. And that's entirely my fault. I don't want to cast aspersions at the company. Uh, but uh thanks for coming out this is uh this is quite an accomplishment this 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 story it's um i want to talk about the reaction to it too because that's actually an interesting part of it um but this story truth cops that you co-wrote with uh with lee fong uh whom i've known for a long time um can you talk first ken just about the the genesis of when you when you two decided to start writing this this piece yeah, so I was particularly irritated by the end zone dance on the part of um, not just Republicans, but civil libertarians generally, uh, who I might agree with on this issue. Um, when the disinformation governance board uh, was shuttered, you know, they were rightly excited about it. I mean, this very Orwellian sounding <laughs> agency, uh, or not agency, but um, board was, was shut down uh, several months ago. And I was very quickly hearing from sources within the Department of Homeland Security that, yeah, that didn't really happen because um, the board was shut down, but that was just an attempt at formalizing what was already happening at a component level of the child agencies of DHS. So in the story, I mentioned that um, Custom and Border Protection is involved in this. The Secret Service is involved in countering disinformation. In addition to all that, they have something called the MDM team under CISA. CISA, C-I-S-A stands for um, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, they have the MDM team, which stands for Misinformation, Disinformation, and Malinformation. All of this was still ongoing despite the shutdown of um, the board, which was really the head of the octopus while the tentacles remain. And so that really motivated me to try to figure, I mean, anytime, anytime someone, a lot, large numbers of people were misled about something, and particularly patting themselves on the back about something, it, that has the effect of me wanting to find out what really That's happened. And so that was sort of the beginning of the story. Okay, so so you're hearing, so you start hearing that it's it's not actually shuttered, right? Which is actually one of the main headlines of this this piece, right? Which is people had the perception that so there was a kerfuffle. I guess it was in April when they first announced this, and then there were there was a a reaction. Half of it, I feel like, was to the concept 
of the Disinformation Governance Board, and then half of it was just to the person, Nina Jankowitz. I don't know if that's if you feel that, that that's accurate, but when they when they appeared to shrink from that idea, it seemed like everybody was lulled into a, a false sense that it had gone away, but it hadn't. And the history that you describe is is pretty intense. Could 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 you begin with first of all, what's CESA? Uh, can you explain that for folks? Yeah, so this is a super young agency. Um, it was signed into law by uh, President Trump, I believe it was in 2018. And as I said before, it's the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, the idea being that, you know, as cyber becomes more of a vector of conflict um, between not just nation states, but non-state actors as well. The idea is that they want to try to have some kind of formalized agency that can respond to it. But as we found out in the in the course of this reporting, um, their their purview has kind of uh, gradually broadened over time. And there was one sort of comical example where they were saying, um, I can't remember which CISA official it was, maybe maybe it was maybe it was the direct the director, but um, it, it said in one of these documents that, that we obtained that well, if you think about it, uh, you know, this disinformation stuff is sort of cognitive in infrastructure. So it falls within our purview to, to respond to it and, and you know, monitor it and worry about it. And I think that just as one example really illustrates uh, how clever they've been about ex expanding their, their um, area of operation and, and what they think falls under their um, authority. So yeah, well, that was gonna be my next, next question. Well, Matt, you're cutting out. Phrase popped up uh, to the private sector. Uh, is this all based on the the act that Trump signed in 2018? Yeah, um, exactly. And that that's been one of my frustrations with the response. Is the topic has become so politicized. I'm not saying that um, the Biden administration hasn't had a huge hand in what's going on and that they haven't intensified it, but the origins of a lot of this stuff were during the Trump administration, sort of as a response to um, not CISA in, in its entirety, but the disinformation response was, was it came about around 2018, um, kind of re reacting to the Russia disinformation stuff from the 2016 election. So then Homeland Security comes around and says, oh, you know, we hear you guys have, have problems with elections disinformation. There's a midterm election, you know, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing um, what's going on. But, right. you know, in 2018, they have the midterm election. They say, well, how about we how about we solve that for you and create this create this um, MDM team under CISA to be able to counter this. And in the context of all the sort of, you know, media reporting about that, I think that they had a pretty friendly um, political uh, uh, backdrop and environment to, to pitch these these expanded responsibilities to. And so that's when it really begins is 2018. Right. And then there's this I think there's this important moment, right? So originally, maybe it wasn't originally, um, but I guess prior to 2021, they had something called the Foreign Intelligence and Interference Branch. And they later changed that in 2021, after I guess after Biden gets elected to MDM, right? Which is misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. <laughs> I'd never heard that term before, like in the, in the government context, but essentially what they were doing is they were, they were expanding their purview from just foreign quote unquote threats to now domestic information as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the most frustrating parts of reporting on this um, was seeing that initially their pitch is, oh, this is just foreign after like nation state disinformation originating from maybe Iran or China or Russia, and to see how gradually the shift happened where they moved from that to targeting, um, uh, you know, domestic uh, disinformation, information that they consider disinformation. Never, as far, I tried very hard to find something in the way of a legal authorization for that or some kind of memo describing their new responsibilities. And I don't think it exists. I think that uh, what we're seeing is a sort of mission creep happening at the administrative level, um, in many cases below the, the, the knowledge of uh, senior people um, within a lot of these national security agencies who I interviewed, asking them about this. And to my astonishment, they're kind of like, wow, that's really bad. Where is uh, this <laughs> happening? And they were, <laughs> a big part of reporter getting sources is just 
bring information to the bureaucrats that they themselves don't know. And so you can kind of become useful to them for like uh, just notifying them about what the hell's even happening in their own institutions, which gives you a sense of how chaotic and, and, and um, uh, you know, poor, poor at communicating internally, much less like informing the public of what they're doing. Um, you know, I mean, if the bureaucrats don't even know, the public has no chance of knowing. So yeah, go, uh, go, going over the process um, of this and, and seeing how it happens, it just seems like a gradual mission creep without even necessarily um, some kind of um, coherent thought behind, oh, we're going to, you know, some sinister guy at the top saying, we're going to go and do this. It seems just like, you know, they're gradually pushing more and more. There's no pushback from the public, which is largely unaware that this stuff is happening. No pushback from Congress. No one's stopping them. And so they just keep expanding their 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 sort of mission set or, or, or domain, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of what happened after 9-11. And, and tell me if you think this is a fanciful comparison, but it, it, it recalls a little bit, you know, programs like Stellar Wind, where they, they didn't necessarily have explicit authorization. They certainly didn't have congressional authorization to do a lot of this stuff uh, in terms of passive data collection, um, but they just sort of went went ahead and did it. And you, you look in vain for where the piece of paper is that says that they can do this, and it's it's not really there. Um, is this a, kind of an analogous situation? I think so. Yeah, and that's really been a learning point for me, because you know uh, when I was first coming into national security reporting, I'm thinking you know, oh, it's this kind of chainy like figure that's orchestrating a lot of this stuff. And as I came to, you know, get better sources and have more insight into how these agencies function, a lot of the worst shit is just kind of like dumb stuff that that happens because there's no appropriate checks at the uh, at the administrative level. The point of the disinformation governance board was because there was some acknowledgement and recognition on the part of the government that they don't have guardrails in place. And actually, um, they were interviewing uh, who was it? Mayorkas. They, yes, they were interviewing Mayorkas, and he actually said that. He said, we need this because we don't have any guardrails in place. That's him acknowledging that his own agency is probably doing stuff that is going to run afoul of, of you know, what their legitimate authorities are. And without some kind of uh, uh, centralized or formalized structure telling them here are where the lines are, here's what you're allowed to do, you know, he's, he's kind of, to me, it seems like he's suggesting something really bad can happen. And so I think we're actually in the worst of both worlds in that uh, so long as we're going to have this stuff, we probably should have it formalized now i don't think we should have it but we're in a situation now where we don't have the formalized uh, uh leadership structure at headquarters telling them what they can do and we still have the uh, child agencies doing a lot of it and so that's just a recipe for um i think uh misconduct and, and chaos it's it's kind of amazing like there, there were um one of the things that's really interesting about the piece is that you link to all these documents some of them are it's, it seems like there are CISA reports or CISA briefings that, right? Um, and it, you know, in, in some uh, instances, well, first of all, let's let's ask the question: Who's on this CISA board, right? Because it seems like there are there are, there are not just government uh, officials, but there are also people from companies like J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, and it, as you reported, Vijay Agati from Twitter, who's now been fired, was on there. Um, who, who, who makes up this panel? Yeah, so there's a huge revolving door between um, the same tech uh, monoliths that you know comprise our, our social media um, environment and the people that work on these. Many of the people that come in to see or leave them go on to work for these same tech companies that they're supposed to be um, interfacing. So there's a lot of um, incestuousness uh, in terms of the relationship. And I think that came through in the porting because we couldn't find very much in the way of these tech companies pushing back against um, these requests. And uh, that sort of has become a flashpoint for the backlash against the story, which is that, well, the government's not actually mandating these things. They're not coercing anyone. They're not forcing anyone to take out, to remove speech. And they're not, it's true, they're not plucking the speech off Twitter or whatever. Um, and as we reported in the story, these are requests from the government. But what I think is a little bit um, disingenuous about that, that sort of response to the story is, come on, these, these social media companies are actively lobbying the federal government. And, and, and in addition to that, understand that the federal government you know, has regulatory authority over them. I find it really hard to believe that when you get a request from the FBI or from the Department of Homeland Security, you're not going to have some 
attitude of deference in, in response to that, if only to remain in the government's good graces. Right, right. And yeah, th- I mean, that's, that's a very strange response to the story, which is, oh, well, th- there's no problem because there was no pushback from these companies. Well, that's not necessarily evidence of anything. It may, it may even make it worse, actually, uh, right. in some ways. Right. Um, but then you look at the you look at the at a granular level at the discussions that are clearly going on. You know, you have this one meeting uh, from I guess it's March 2022, and there's an FBI person. I guess his name Laura Demlow, um, and the name is is blocked out. Uh, but one of the other subcommittee members asks for verification that MDM is, quote, only monitored or under the purview of the FBI, FTIF, based on the connection to foreign or criminal activity. In other words, these people on the board don't even know what they're legally allowed to do. Exactly. (laughs) Right? Uh, And then the FBI, the answer that that she gives, I think, is not accurate, because although that is true that they're not supposed to do um, that kind of analysis, they, unless there's a foreign threat or, or criminal activity, they, they do do that, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And again, what, I think what they have sturdier legal basis for is responding to the foreign-based disinformation. I think, I think that's pretty clear. But the problem is um, the, the media environment we have now is so inter- international by definition and by virtue of the you know, World Wide Web uh, those those nation state distinctions become harder to make. Um, and so if you look back at when they're taking down, um, you know, uh, foreign influence websites, they have to make a case that it's owned by the Iranian government or it's owned by the Chinese government. Um, you know, but as as they drift towards this domestic stuff, I think that it's not always easy for them to tell what a what a nation state level actor is is um, backing and uh, things become very blurry very quickly. I mean, p- part of the reason that I did this story is to try to stimulate d- debate around h- how we're even going to define w- what is foreign, what is domestic, because information travels around frictionlessly so quickly in a way that, you know, I was talking to an old CIA officer who used to do um, disinformation or uh, used to do information operations. And he was telling me that it used to be so much harder and everything used to, or, sorry, it, it is so much um, more complicated now because things travel around so quickly. If you place a piece of disinformation in a foreign government like the United Kingdom, you can be sure that the whole English speaking world is gonna be exposed to it in a matter of hours because of the way that information travels around. So the entire game has changed, but unfortunately our legal regime around it has not. If you look at something like the Smith-Munt Act, which is supposed to oversee um, domestic information, protect Americans from our government's um, information operations, Abroad, it has not. It used to get. It was amended a number of times, and it hasn't been amended once since the internet came about. It hasn't been amended since the eighties, <laughs> I believe. So there's really been no commensurate effort on the part of the federal government to update its its kind of bylaws and and you know uh, guardrails, as Mary's put it, um, to to keep up with you know how rapidly the information environment is changing. Right, and this this kind of runs in parallel to developments and other. Um, enforcement agencies like the FBI, where you know after the Church Committee hearings, uh, a bunch of the agencies, but 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 the FBI also was, you know, they had new Attorney General guidelines that required that they have some kind of criminal predicate before they right. open a case, and then they changed that radically after nine eleven, and um, and so here it's it's kind of the Wild West, isn't it? Like they they're just Looking at stuff, there's no real legal um, uh, architecture in which they're operating to look at somebody's account or or do some kind of interference or make a request of a company or or, or anything at, apart from this this act. Unless I'm misreading it. Yeah, no, that's right. I actually quote in the story um, an attorney at the National Security Law Project. I think it was under the Brennan Center, which is the New York University. And, you know, I was sort of astonished because my FBI sources were telling me, as I quoted in the story, I don't even know what's legal anymore because they're, you know, very early on socialized. You do not 
you know, uh, you're not supposed to target Americans. It's supposed to be foreign. I mean, they have a term for it. They all say uspers because it's so familiar to the intelligence people. Uspers, you're not, there's, there's lines between you and them. You're not supposed to target uspers. It stands for U.S. persons. Mm. So, so they're really indoctrinated. And I do think, I do think they take it pretty serious, or they think they take it pretty seriously. Like, it's pretty sincere. And now with this internet in- environment that I'm describing where it's not clear who's an usper and who's not, I think that a lot of them feel bad about it and express um, confusion about how they're supposed to, um, you know, going about do, doing what they do when it's not clear if it's a foreign uh, actor or not. So, yeah, I think the legal regime has really not kept up with, with the pace of the, of the technology. Uh, just a couple more questions before we uh, let, and then I hope you have um, a few minutes to talk, take some calls. But, um, sure. but first of all, what's the Facebook content request system? Um, so that's like a portal where uh, uh, people can report disinformation for consideration. And there is um, a special uh, mechanism by which government officials can use their government email to, to flag things so that they knew it was coming from a government official and that would get treated in a certain way. Um, and again, the, the counter argument is, oh, these are just requests. So they're not actually mandating anything, which is, I, that, that is narrowly true. I mean, just because the government says it doesn't mean they're gonna automatic, they're not legally obligated to comply with it. But my point is kind of, you know, can this have a chilling effect? I mean, just realistically, is a, is a huge multinational corporation that depends on the, you know, US government for, um, you know, uh, regulatory decisions and things of that sort, you know, is, is them saying something, is that going to have some form of influence? I would imagine it would. Um, but that's, that's what that, that portal is. Yeah. That's, that feels kind of like a fig leaf, doesn't it? I mean, I think yeah, so, they, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the significance of that portal with, with, uh, you know, using your government um, information to, to, you know, to have access to it, um, is that, you know, the, uh, essentially it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a separate track request, set of requests that come from the government to dial down information, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. The, when you put in the federal government, like .gov or whatever, that's going to be received in a different way than, in, I mean, so one, another one of the counter arguments is, oh, anyone can you know, send, send complaints at you, me, the government, it's all, what's the big deal here? And that's true, but a .gov is going to be seen and, and processed differently than an ordinary person's complaint. Right. Right. Um, and you had this great quote in here from Jonathan Turley, uh, where he talks about how, you know, there's growing evidence that the legislative and, and uh, executive branch officials are using social media companies to engage in censorship by surrogate. And, you know, that kind of sounds like uh, basically what the mechanism here. Everybody has deniability in this system um, because it's all just a request. Uh, there's no ordering, um, but you do have you have multiple examples of them making requests and at least getting responses from these companies and in, in right. the affirmative that we're going to look into it. Is that right? right? Yeah. And it's not just the government. I think there's an understanding, uh, again, given the media environment, that uh, corporate these social media corporations don't want to get yelled at by large numbers of people in the public for not acting on something. I remember, you know, for a number of years, if there was some piece of, you know, there was a COVID falsehood or maybe falsehoods about some foreign conflict, um, if the Facebook didn't take it down, I remember seeing all these headlines. It's like Facebook is responsible for such and such deaths or whatever. And so... I do think there's been a shift on the part of the public too. I don't want to lay it all at the feet of the federal government. Um, I was, for example, looking at polling around attitudes on on uh, social media moderation, and it varies according to the crisis. But to go back to your 9/11 comparison, I do think that under conditions of fear, people are more apt to allow the federal government broader leeway. So um, when I was looking at the polling, it showed pretty broad support for um, uh, taking down of social media content related to um, social media. Uh, uh, COVID-19 falsehoods, which like, I kind of get like, that was a very scary time. Um, I don't want anyone to see something untrue and then get sick and die because of it. But the problem is, um, once they get these authorities, there's never any sort of attempt to say, okay, well, we're back at a semi-normal situation now, or it's less of a crisis than it was. So do we still need these 
things in place, much, much as the case is, is 9-11. It's like there's never any rollback of these um, privileges that, that are afforded in times of crisis, I think. Right. And, and whenever there's some kind of ex, uh, expansion of authority, uh, you know, executive branch authority, it's always an emergency. Right? I mean, it's, right. it's never like it's, oh, yeah, well, things are things are great. So we're just going to expand our <laughs> our authority. That's not, not how it works. It's, it always happens in the context of something scary. And it seems like the, um, you know, that that's a, sort of a permanent condition. Um just quickly about the the reaction to the story, uh, it, it seems like it, it got a lot of press, uh, but it, it it was sort of all over the place, right? Because you know you're you're you and Lee are writing for the Intercept. You would have expected that there would have been some green room invites from you know <laughs> CNN, MSNBC, but. Um, it was kind of all over. Can you just talk a little bit about the reaction to it? Because it, it, it did certainly make an impression. Um, it didn't disappear like a lot of other stories, uh, but it was a little uneven, the reaction. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly among independent media uh, that there was discussion about it. I think Joe Rogan at the top of his show just read like the first page of it word for word. And then at that point, you know, huge numbers of people saw it. I think there was a lot of sort of disingenuous effort to try to uh, pigeonhole this story as kind of like a right-wing story because a lot of people on the right wing were pushing it. But again, and I went to great I went to great lengths within the story to pre prevent this from happening. Um, just because when you politicize something, then when the other guys are in office, then everyone stops caring about it. It's important to realize this is a bipartisan feature, and this I really think that what's going on this is a national security state story. It's not a Trump or a Biden story because I can't stress enough how many senior people are not aware of the extent of, of what's happening. Like not only is it not a white, I don't think it's primarily a either administration story. It's not even primarily a, a, the heads a senior of the level story. story. Right. It's like happening beneath that even because there aren't those appropriate uh, guardrails and articulation about what they're, what they're supposed to do. So I would say the backlash has been mostly what I've mentioned before about saying, Oh, these are just requests, not, not mandates, which we never said anywhere in the story that these are mandates. And then the other one is that um, we're carrying water for the right or something, which again, I, I very clearly mentioned in it, you know, <laughs> that this is something that's happened under both administrations. Certainly it's accelerated and, and grown under the Biden administration, but I just don't see how people, I just don't see this as a partisan, I don't see this as a left or right story in specific. And frankly, I don't see free speech as a left or right thing. It just seems like a basic thing to me. Well, I mean, it's just a reflexive response now, PR response to every story that's uncomfortable in any way. <laughs> then right. It just gets dismissed as you're carrying water for the right or it's it's right as propaganda or whatever. But as you say, the, the story is really, not only is it not partisan, it really speaks to something that's that's not only... It's apolitical is the wrong word, but it's right. It's this dystopian and creepy and a little bit comic too, right? Like there's there's one of these uh, um, memos, one of these season memos where there's there's like a bullet point at the top of it. I just gonna I want to read this sentence because it's so amazing. <laughs> it says, "How can CISA inspire innovators to partner with the government in a way that quote." catalyzes the availability of entrusted information, unquote, without being seen as government, quote, propaganda. I mean, <laughs> just the idea of all these people getting around and, and, and scratching their heads and saying, wow, how can we affect uh, the information <laughs> landscape without it looking like government propaganda? I mean, you, you can't write stuff like that. I mean, that, that's, that's straight out of, out of a dystopian novel, it feels like. Yeah, I really, my personal feeling about the story, this is a post 9-11 thing more than anything. That's what it reminded me of most is the excesses of the war on terror. And really what we're seeing right now is a shift because the war on terror is being drawn down and these huge agencies that represent massive budgets and, and um, you know, armies of contractors, they need something to do. And so I think that this is part of a broader shift towards conceptualizing the threat as one that's coming from inside the house in uh, domestic in domestic terms as right. opposed to foreign what was that movie i can't you know, i always forget the name of that movie the uh when a stranger calls that's right <laughs> uh, 
Well, if you, if you have a, a few moments, I'd like to open it up to some callers. I mean, there's there's some other topics that I'm, I wanted to ask you about, like sure. how big is the, how many people are we talking about or involved yeah. in operations? But I think some of those some of those things will come up. So um, if you don't mind, I will, let, let's just see who's, uh, let's see who's waiting here. Hang on a yeah, second. Yeah, let's do it. All right. I think, John, you're up. There you go. John, uh, you there? Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Oh, great. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, excellent article, Ken. I, I really appreciated it. I really appreciate your work. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. What I wanted to ask about is, you know, because I think you did a, such a good job of being very even handed and, you know, because I don't think that this should be political. But I guess my, my question is about that mission creep you were referring to. Yeah. You know, what to what what do you attribute the causes of that too you know is it a you know is it the opportunistic actions you know you were just talking about post 9-11 is it you know dhs looking for a new mission and just the a government agency trying to expand its power and influence or do you think that you know given that even under trump there does seem to be a particular ideological bent to to some of what this agency is doing do you think it might reflect an ideological bent of, of the agency itself um, when DHS was first established, remember, it was established in 2003, right after the attacks, or maybe 2002, I can't remember which year. Um, it was designed very explicitly to be more responsive to uh, uh, political leadership's demands. Because if you look at um, how Matt was describing earlier, the FBI agent focusing on foreign influence, they, those agencies are a lot older, and have a lot more institutional architecture, um, kind of boxing in what they are and aren't allowed to do and, and making their understanding a little bit more um, overt. DHS was designed, I guess, if you're a proponent of it, you would say it's more flexible and able to respond more quickly. If you're a critic of it, you would say that it's easier to exploit. I mean, we just had a report come out about the um, DHS's uh, Office of Intelligence and Analysis response to the protests in uh, Portland, the, including the unrest. Um, and it was amazing. They were, what came out that Senator Wyden was able to um, unredact from one of these DHS reports was that they were making, um, they, they sought to make um, intelligence uh, uh, reports, uh, like dossiers on every single protester there. And so th th the fact that it was DHS that was trying to do that, and it wasn't FBI, that really gives you a sense of like the cowboy nature of that specific agency. So I do think that there's something to what you're saying about DHS's unique um, bureaucratic DNA that allows it to get into this kind of stuff in a way that's a lot more aggressive than some of the other agencies. Um, but at the same time, I would say that it's probably the fact that there's no pushback from the public, I, I do think, you know, a lot of scary things happened. I understand it is really scary to see all these people dying from some unprecedented pandemic. I think in those environments, just like it was scary when 9-11 happened, it's scary to you know find out about Al-Qaeda. Um, that creates an environment where bureaucrats aren't going to get any sort of pushback for these kind of expansions. And so I think just naturally then it's going to grow in that direction because no one, and the thing is, this distinction between the public and the national security state, I do think that there's a lot of attempts to sort of obfuscate and uh, uh, have this mystique idea of how the IC is. You know, knowing these people, th they might just be watching TV news like the rest. I mean, they do just watch TV news like the rest of us. Like they're, it's not an entirely separate category. So they also may be more scared and apt to r respond more um, robustly than, than they would in an environment where something scary isn't happening. So I, I really think it's, it's just, public attitudes have shifted on questions of content moderation and, and you know, freedom of speech. So I, I would, I, I honestly think that that is probably the driving force even more than the national security state. Although um, the problem is what the national security state is doing is, is it's not public. And so it's really hard to find out. And so to the extent that there can be a public reaction, it's really muted if, if you don't have a press that's kind of dragging this stuff out in the light. Yeah. If, if I could just really quickly uh, add something there. I mean, if you talk to people in um, in the FBI uh, or in the intelligence services, I mean, I don't have a ton of intelligence sources, but uh, certainly in the FBI and some other places, there's there's been a schism um, within some of the older agencies where, uh, like, kind of the old school investigators will say, well, terrorism uh, and uh, threats. And, you know, all, all these things, they're all crimes anyways. So we should, we should just 
pour our, our resources into investigating crimes and locking up bad guys and, and securing convictions. But there's a kind of a new generation, and I think the I think DHS symbolizes it because it is a new agency and doesn't have the the law and order background um, of those other agencies, where its entire function is basically to monitor and and to um, dis- disrupt or dismantle operations without going to court, and and so there's this whole legacy that they've been doing since 9-11 uh but but they've just uh, correct me if i'm wrong ken it just seems like they're they're now moving a little bit more towards the information landscape than than before when they were mo- more operating uh on the anti-terrorist level yeah i think that's true they uh as the name would suggest they're endowed with special um legal privileges that allow them to operate much more in the homeland than fbi so fbi is in the intelligence community and, you know, post-church committee, there are, you know, relatively robust uh, protections for, for U.S. persons against whatever it is that they're doing. Not only does that not exist in a um, legal level for uh, DHS, or at least not in the same way, that doesn't exist in a cultural level. I have a lot of FBI and DHS sources, and they just have much different attitudes culturally about how they're supposed to um, comport themselves. And to speak to your question of the move into the information space, I think some of that too is, you know, these these institutions are always jockeying for relevance uh, to continue getting their budgets. Exactly. Um, DHS, you know, uh, you identify all of these hacks that are happening and things, and you know, that's that's pretty hot territory to be able to offer your uh, services to. And so much of so much of this is private contractors. To give you guys an example, I was chatting with a um, CIA officer that recently retired, and he was telling me he didn't he he was sort of contemptuous of a lot of the anti-disinformation stuff. And then one day he says to me, he says, hey, I'm thinking about taking up a, de- a disinfo con- countering disinfo contract. And I kind of laughed because I was like, wait, I thought you hated those guys. He's like, yeah, but there's like so many jobs and so much money in this stuff. It's too easy. And j- <laughs> j- just to give you guys a sense of like how prom- how much money is being thrown around at this uh, kind of stuff and, and perhaps why why DHS sees an opportunity to, to move in that direction. That's freaky. John, thanks a lot for the question. All right, thank you. All right, uh, let's see who's next here. Um, v, are you there? Hello. Maybe. I'm... Hello. Hi. Yep. Hi. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. No, of course. Uh, so uh, I was hoping to ask uh, two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, was that trying to understand your thesis a little bit better, uh, and I have to um, uh, say that. I haven't read uh, your article, just going by this conversation. Um, uh, are you saying that uh, this is kind of like a bottom-up uh, situation, uh, I guess the metastasis of, of what's happening in the national security state, um, instead of, you know, a top-down where there's like some guy telling everyone what to do and, uh, you know, there's a there, there's big conspiracy. Um, uh, do you view that as, you know, better, worse, or, or, you know, just the same, uh, this transformation that, that it's done to, um, to our government. And um, number two, I was wondering if uh, you'd care to wade into uh, the Kanye West controversy. <laughs> um, uh, for the second one, anti-Semitism is bad. I, I think I'm probably in good standing saying that. Um, <laughs> as for the specifics, like I, I'm not a Kanye, I haven't really followed it very much. Um, to And then to speak to the DHS question, um, I would say it's a chaos thing, like when you don't have clearly articulated. Um, so if you look at, um, for example, I mentioned before the uh, DHS response to to uh, to the Portland unrest, um, all the worst stuff that happened. If you look at the inspector general report, they actually sat down and interviewed a lot of the guys involved in that trying to um, No, just a few more minutes. Sorry. Um, if you if you look at the um, inspector general report, what they found was that uh, the most common thing that went wrong was the um, Office of Intelligence Analysis officers that were working there. And like, I think this was when these vehicles were like grabbing protesters off the street, it's like unmarked, and then they would like interrogate them, all this weird stuff. I, I was thinking it was going to be some kind of Cheney thing where it's some crazy Trump guy. It's like telling him, any of us taking over, we've got to go and black back these guys or whatever. And what the inspector general found was that they didn't actually know what they were allowed to do and what they weren't. Um, and so that element of just like, chaos and like and they described junior officers who were never 
you know, indoctrinated into what, what their mission set is and kind of thing. It, it, I'm not saying that like there aren't people at high levels that want certain things, but at the same time, there's a heck of a lot of chaos too. And so uh, I really think that that's central to, to what we're seeing happening. And that's what the disinformation board was trying to um, get at. Um, again, I don't think they should be doing any of this stuff, but as long as they are, yeah, we should probably have a, a, a you know, clear definition of like what even disinformation means and like what all these things are. Um, and unfortunately we don't. So, so yeah, I guess, I mean, there's certainly elements at the top too, that, that, that want to move into this space. There's no question about that. But what I was struck by was in reporting this out, thinking that it was really going to be that top down thing and finding a lot more evidence for that. Um, there's, uh, this bottom up tendency happening. Yeah. I I think, I think that a lot of people, the first time they they're experience, they're exposed to how chaotic government is. They're, they're really they're really shocked and surprised. Uh, anyway, V, thank you so, so much for the question. Uh, can't, we got time for a couple more, if that's okay. Sure. Good. Um, all right. I believe Kelly is next. Thank you. Um, uh, there was one thing that I thought I could add, which was. The discussion of uh, websites that you can only log into with your government email address. I've seen and used these, not this particular one. And I can say that, you know, there are probably 100,000 people who have government email accounts who actually are contractors. So it adds sort of a dimension of um, nefariousness when you think that there are literally tens of thousands of people who work for Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon. Um, who have those those .gov accounts? <clears throat> um, and That's really interesting. I didn't even think of that. Hmm. And I can just just say, you know, in my own experience, I've worked with with the military and the interagency on their what we you know sometimes called psyop operations, and it really is just a few years ago was very primitive. It was still Korean War style. Hmm. We're designing leaflets that we're going to drop from an airplane. So I'm, I'm wondering exactly how deeply they can get into sort of controlling an algorithm that decides what's going to be served up to the world's population as news. Thank you. Ken, yeah, I mean, that, that's actually sort of a question that I had for you, too. I mean, is there an element here of the government making maybe not being as technologically advanced as some of these companies and sort of partnering with them to expand their capabilities in a way that they wouldn't be able to alone? Um, I think there's something to that. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I was chatting with an FBI counterintelligence um, agent a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, my own consciousness probably like many Americans is informed by Hollywood. <laughs> And so I'm thinking they have all these gee whiz tools to, to look at things. And he says to me, he says, man, you know what we wish we had? We wish we just had Google, like the company and their data. That would really give us some power. And I was like, wait, like they can do more than you guys can? He's like, absolutely. And that, and ever since that conversation, it really turned on, on its head, my, this notion that, you know, I grew up watching like, um, like uh, what's the Matt Damon movie where he works for the CIA? Um, oh, the, the, the born identity. Yeah, the born the born identity series, and thinking like, wow, they've got all these great, you know, just bloop bloop. You just push a few buttons, and you can get into a camera or something. And what you realize is that um, to the extent that they can do those things, they're relying on like private sector contractors because the government just can't isn't very good at doing those sorts of things. So I think you make a really important point too in in that vein um, about the contractors because um, you know they call them guvies uh, in in the intelligence world. That's a, you're a formal employee. The reality is. Um, they don't actually make that much. They can often make more work in the private sector. And so if you look at contractors, they make a lot more. I think um, there was a report not long ago, I, I think it maybe it was Brown University, that found that like half of all the money for, um, I think it was the war on terror, went to contractors to give you guys a sense of just how much cash flow there is. Yeah. And so um, when you talk about, to answer your earlier question, Matt, the MDM team, I think it's about two dozen people. So it's not large in itself, but that doesn't account for um all of the contractors that they have working under them so it's sort of a, a tip of the iceberg situation you can infer how much bigger it is based on the the formal presence of like actual government employees um i, I think that since the social media stuff is still sort of in a nascent fa phase and i think there is some 
timidity around like the political backlash. In fact, I know that the administration is worried about that from from um, you know people on the people on the Hill, um, and the Republicans have not been shy about saying they're going to investigate the administration when they take the House in a few weeks. It is as it appears uh, that they're poised to do. Um, so because of that, I think there is, um, you know, at least an attempt to to have that fig leaf of oh we're just requesting things and to not move enormously beyond that. But again, I only know what I'm able to surmise from the documents and accounts that my sources will provide. Uh, there, you know, there may be things going on that I'm not aware of. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. We'll move on to the last person just too quickly to, to dovetail with what you just said. Um, I had an interview with an FBI person a couple of weeks ago who told me they were still using cassette tapes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So exactly. like that, that gives you an indication of where, where they are. Uh, let's see. Okay. Could I just add one last thing? And that is my own experience. You're never supposed to characterize classified information, but I was so excited. It's like, oh, all the answers. We know everything right. about everyone. Yeah. Right. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's my experience in, in getting that stuff leaked to me and thinking, oh, my God, here it is. The keys to the kingdom. I have the I'm going to break the next COINTELPRO and looking through it. And it's like, wait a second. This is mostly just Googleable information, <laughs> you know, exactly. 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 Um, all right, Ken. Let's see if there's one more person here. Uh, Amy, are you there? Oh, Kelly. Thank you. By the way. Thanks. I'm still on uh, deck. There you go. Oh, here we go. Amy, are you there? Can you hear me now? Yep. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll just comment on what the, the last caller was saying. And I, I work for another agency, um, uh, not DHS. Um, but I, I can assure you that it's nothing like the, the Jason Bourne movies. Um, <laughs> uh, could not be further from the truth. Um, you know, and, and I think it would surprise a lot of people how um, kind of ad hoc a lot of things are, are done. Right. Um, in our, you know, we're kind of like a spider monkey. But I kind of wanted to ask your thoughts, um, both of your thoughts on sort of the broader um, uh, freedom of speech space and, um, and what a lot of these efforts by the government uh, to, to suppress disinformation, um, which is really, you know, just all over the, the U.S. government and, and other governments, um, does it actually, in a sort of perverse way, inspire a little bit of optimism in the sense that um, they wouldn't be trying to suppress it if, it if the information wasn't getting through, if it wasn't having an impact? And um, is, it, is it just... Sometimes I see it as like this panicked um, response to the social media age where the government and the elites, they, they can't control the narrative like they used to. So they're panicking. But the fact that they're doing it sort of signifies that they're failing. If that makes well, sense. I would say I would say you're right that there is a freak out. So in FBI, they have this funny term. They say going dark. It's some big thing they're all afraid of. And, and what it means is that. Uh, uh, people are using apps or using encryption and things that they can't, they don't have insight into. And so there's definitely hysteria around the fact that they don't have, you know, 50 years ago, you could control the narrative by just working with the wire services in the New York times and the human centipede system of like that, those reports get then getting aggregated by other media gave you a lot of dominance. They don't have that anymore. And I do think they feel that very acutely. Um, however, I don't think it's a cause for optimism, at least not because the, the forms of disinformation that, that they're talking about, you know, I am sort of sympathetic. Like, I don't think the government should have a role in this, but like a lot of it is sort of execrable. Like, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, this began as responding to disinformation on elections. You have people like Jacob Wall calling people and saying, you know, you're going to go to jail. I don't remember exactly, but making some kind of insinuation that you can get in trouble for voting and think he's being investigated for that. Now, you know, all that stuff, uh, wherever it happens, I, you know, I think that's bad. And so it doesn't, to me, it doesn't inspire confidence that it's like that stuff is happening. And to the extent that, you know, um, things aren't harmful, like um, th th that's going around. I think that the remit is still relatively narrow. Like it has been, so it started out focusing on elections disinformation, then it became COVID-19 and it became, I think I mentioned a story they're worried about information around the withdrawal from Afghanistan and U.S. Mm -hmm. um, military support for Ukraine now, so you can see it's broadening, and I think it will get to the point that it starts to encompass um, more. I don't know. I think like constructive information instead of like 
I mean, I guess they're making a value judgment, but I think that what they're focused on now probably still has relatively strong public support because it's stuff like, you know, someone says something about COVID that isn't true and maybe people will read it and something bad will happen. So, you know, I think government incursion is, is not good in principle, but if you look at the specific cases that they're looking at right now, it's probably a better case that they can make for that than, than what it could be in the near future. But the whole point of the story is that it's not static. These things are in flux mm-hmm. and growing at all times. Yeah, if I, if I would, you know, the only thing I would say to that is, um, you know, we've, we have a long history in this country. We've, we've never had really a centralized media regulator that was in charge of reviewing every single piece of content for accuracy. And I, I think there was a reason for that. Like there, there was a, um, a hesitation on the part of the government or at least on the part of the, of the electorate uh, to encourage the government to get into the business of, of deciding what's true and what's not. And, um, you know, they've, they've kind of just done it unilaterally here. And I, I you know, I'm kind of, I'm with you. Can I, I understand like the reflex right. to do it, but I, I don't have a ton of confidence that they're, they're not going to misuse um right the, the idea and um and and it could get re- really out of hand really quickly um you, you know there there are things that come up in your story that make you realize that if they were to the, were to get their act together a little bit um it could get scary pretty quickly uh, feels like yeah yeah i agree and you know insofar as we're worried about you know as i am some post telling someone um you know don't see a doctor or drink bleach or whatever um, you know, there are private groups that can uh, handle responding to those things. It's not a zero-sum thing. It's not like, oh, the government can't do anything about it. Therefore, we're just completely helpless to it. There's all sorts of ways. There's a there's a range of ways we can respond to that constructively. That doesn't mean um, bringing Washington into it, I, I think. Right. Excellent. Uh, well, anyway, uh, thank you to everyone who, who came by. We had a lot, a lot of people in the room today. Uh, there's 530 here right now, which is great. And Ken... Um, for any, if everybody who hasn't read the piece, definitely encourage everybody to read Truth Cops now. Uh, it's it's a you know it's, it's one of those pieces that actually affects uh, things and and has made an impact, which is great. So congratulations to you and um, thanks for coming out today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was a lot of fun. All right, thank you. Thanks everybody, and uh, I'm going to end the room now. But uh, you can find the transcript later, and um, I'm going to uh, t- uh, tweet all of this out um, over the next couple of days. Thank you. <laughs>